exactly does it mean to share your hotness? We all have our own unique spark. We are burning out of control like a wildfire, attracting attention, but is it the right kind of attention? All around us are people who are campfires. They don't get as much attention, but their story, their signature spark, their heat that attracts us close to them, those stories need to be shared. On this podcast, we're sharing their stories, their stories of resilience, overcoming, how to find joy, happiness, everyday people who found their spark and made their life amazing. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Share Your Hotness with your host, Lita Green, and my guest today, Mark Cassera. And we started talking, and he started doing something that Mark always does, being interesting. And um, we were talking about honeymoons, and I went to Fountain Green, Utah for this lady that I cleaned house for, and it was charming, and she had a fully stocked fridge, and it was perfect because it was free, and that was perfectly in line with what we could afford at the time. Um, and then Mark started telling the story. I was like, wait, wait, we got to be recording. So Mark, I'm, I'm going to start from the very mind. beginning. Okay. Okay. Very beginning. So very beginning. Mark is a, a bomber pilot. KC-135 right? tankers. I pass gas for a living. <laughs> pass gas. See how funny he is. And around him, you've got all these images of planes. He even has a lapel pin that that's a European tanker, you said, uh, right? Yeah. And he's got all this military stuff around him. And I'm guessing a famous person in a picture there. It's Rush Limbaugh. Oh, I couldn't quite see. It's my good friend, Rush Limbaugh. Did you actually meet him? Oh, I've had dinner at his house. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, Mark knows all the people and he knows all the things. So he's he's amazing. Okay, so I'll get into that story here in a little bit. Okay, so um, I was uh got my heart broken and i said then i'm just gonna go away for a while and when you're in the air force as a pilot you can go away for a very long time (laughs) when you pass gas for a living yeah yeah, and i went to europe for like uh jesus almost like 100 days which back then a normal rotation was 60 days and we were there for i think like 89 days because there was a lot going on at that time period in the Middle East, Iran and Iraq were at war with each other in the 80s. And so I came back from this deployment. And a very dear friend of mine goes to my ward says, Hey, let's go down to the young single adult ward down in Boston. And so for those of out of our face, that ward is um, code word for congregation. Yes. And so I said, No, I don't want to go. Well, he called me every day that week. Wow. And said, come on, let's go. Come on, let's go. Come on, let's go. He wanted you to be his wingman. Yes, he needed a wingman. Yeah, see how I made an aeronautical joke there? (laughs) And that's the party I met my wife at. So I tell everybody, I met my wife at a party I didn't want to go to. I stood her up on our first date and our courtship involved nuclear weapons. (laughs) Well, that's a story. Yeah. Yeah. And she was, st- she was sitting on this big rock out in front of the Longfellow Park uh, congregation building. And she says to me, oh, look, twinner keychains. And I'm like going, what? And we had the same brass little key fob that had our names on it. What? 34 years later, I still have that on my keychain. It says Valerie oh. on it. 
Oh, oh, that's so cute. Is she still has it on her keychain? No, she lost mine a long time ago. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm I'm the hopeless romantic. Okay. No, that's there. <clears throat> that's adorable. So, uh, I think we only dated for like eight weeks, and I asked her to marry me. And she's ten years younger than I am, so everybody thought, mm, "What's going on here?" But we knew it was the right thing to do. Okay. Yeah. Well, my squadron commander says. Dude, you have two weeks to get this done. And I said, okay. So we planned the wedding for March 30th. So my anniversary was March 30th, 35 years together now. Well, that's amazing. Congrats. <clears throat> and and so we we get to Salt Lake City and I'm and remember the LDS church. We get married in the LDS temple, okay, on a cold, snowy day, and she gets sick. Oh no. Okay. We don't have one picture of us together on our honeymoon in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Okay. So um you don't have you got pictures at the wedding. We got pictures at the wedding, but we're in Jackson Hole. Then you Hole. go to your honeymoon and we go to like... Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and she's she's sick. <laughs> and so uh <laughs> we went into this one really nice restaurant up there. It's called the White Buffalo, and she, you know, took a whiff of what was in there and said, let's go home and we just went back to the apartment or back to the the hotel room and uh just kind of laid out there and and uh anyway did you ever get sick no I didn't just her because I'm guessing you kissed her on your honeymoon I did oh wow that's that's playing with germs there was much distraction on our honeymoon yes okay all right but literally we got married had a couple of days in Jackson Hole, and then we had to turn around and get right back home because we were having what's called our operational readiness inspection. So, was she able to go be stationed where you were? <clears throat> yes. Okay, because when my husband and I first got married, he was supposed to go off to officer basic course, uh-huh. and he was not to have a wife with him. So, the joke, of course, is that the army wanted you to have a wife; they would have issued you one. <laughs> yeah. So yes. they had housing for him um, at Fort Gordon, like mm-hmm. in Augusta, Georgia. And I had to get separate housing, but we were paying oh, wow. for the housing a thousand dollars, which, you know, this is 25 years ago. And then we which got was a lot of money, which was a ton of money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was as expensive as mm-hmm. a hotel. Mm-hmm. And then they were going to reimburse us, but not till we got to his duty station. Oh, gee. And that took like nine months. And, and then I also had to have a place to live because I wasn't allowed to be at his housing on base. <laughs> And, um, so we got this little apartment with the, you know, with the Murphy bed that comes out of the wall and that was almost the full width of the apartment was this Murphy bed. And it's like this little teeny cooktop and this little teeny, it was perfect for newlyweds, but well, see when we first met, she didn't believe I fly airplanes. (laughs) Okay. Cause you meet a guy at a party and it goes, yeah, I just got home from Europe in the middle East. I fly airplanes. And she and her friend, Nicole, looked at me like, yeah, sure. Uh-huh, oh, and yeah. I had a Top Gun hat on because the movie had just come out. Oh, so okay. cliche, Mark. You look like a Top Gun fan. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so they're all looking at me like, yeah, right. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah. But she still so, went out on a date with you and she thought you were a liar. Even after I stood her up. Yeah, which. And, and that's why I say. Well, that's why I say our courtship involved nuclear weapons, because during the Reagan Cold War era, I would go on nuclear alert with six nuclear armed airplanes and five tankers every third week. 
Oh my heavens. Steve Panger broke his knee. We, we would go Wednesday to Wednesday and Steve Panger broke his knee the first day Steve he Panger was on. being like your. Steve Panger was another co-pilot. Okay. Uh -huh. And he was going on alert, broke his knee playing basketball. And I was the next co-pilot available. So they called me and said, Hey, you got to go on alert. I called her five times trying to tell her I can't come. But Friday, this is okay? back when before people had cell phones. This so is, did, exactly. she even have a, did she even have an answering machine? No. Yeah, because I just want to give reference to people, the answering machines. <clears throat> I'm 50 in September, and I remember just thinking, man, that is so fancy to have an answering machine. I mean, because we, I remember when they came was, out. Yeah, it, it's this, this is 1987, and, and so nothing happened, and I had to go. So she got all dressed up, dolled up Friday night, and I never showed up. Yeah. So the next day, I called her after I got off of alert. And you have to understand, I'm in a fenced-in area in an underground concrete bunker that is nuclear-hardened. <laughs> and every 30 feet on the fence, it says, use of deadly force is authorized. Yeah, okay? yeah, yeah. Because there's <laughs> nuclear-armed airplanes on the other side. Right, right, right. All right? So I, get, I call her on the phone. I said, look, I'm really sorry. I, I, I missed you last night. You know, and she goes, had something to do with flying, didn't it? And I said, yeah, it did. You know, I still don't realize that she doesn't think I'm a pilot. Oh. And so. <laughs> so she's like, oh, I had something to do with flying. Yeah, it had to do yeah. with airplanes, right? So I get down there. It takes me two hours to find the house because there's no GPS in your car or your phone. Right, right. Yeah. All right. And she lives in downtown Boston. Oh, so, which even with GPS. <laughs> Even with GPS, um, there's a definitely a bumper sticker because I live not too far north of Boston with two of my kids were born. And it said, um, I got lost in Boston. And it's a popular bumper sticker that you see all over cars. All over. Yeah. And, and so I get to the house. She's not there. And I think, oh, well, she stood me up, you know, fair heard play. about fair play, fair play. Yeah. I understand. Okay. So I thought, you know what? There's a great place to go shopping down here. I'm a single guy on flying status. So I get extra money. It's called flight pay. Uh-huh. I have my own apartment. I have a Ford Thunderbird Turbo Coupe that I just bought. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm doing pretty Man, good. Man, you are totally doing the top gun thing. Yeah, I, I really am. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if I believe you right now. <laughs> and and the other thing too is because I'm a uh, a young co-pilot. We could actually go and check out an airplane and go fly to co-pilots, okay? We'd get hop in the airplane. we go, oh, well, let's go down to Groton, Connecticut and get one of those big cheeseburger club sandwiches at Groton, Connecticut. And we'd take off in an Air Force airplane, little trainer airplane called a T-37 and go down there and get a cheeseburger club sandwich and, and come back. again, guessing they let you do that because it would be like flight practice and stuff? Exactly. That's exactly okay. what it's called. It was called the Accelerated Co-Pilot Enrichment or ACE program. All right. Got it. So, ACE. Of course it was called ACE. Of course. Because it just course. helps you. I'm in the ACE program. It just helps yeah. you pick up chicks. With my Top Gun hat on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I finally, she, she drives up. She had just driven her friend to the airport and she's kind of nervous. And I'm like, are you okay? And she goes, you know, I could really use a hug right now. I go, hugs are free, you know? Yeah. And she says, didn't you see the note I left in the door? 
And I said, no, I didn't. And what had happened was, is the screen door had closed and she had left it in the mail slot and I didn't see it. Say so it was saying, stay here. I'll be right back. So I said, oh. I, and I just happened to come back and I was writing my note when she drove up. So I said, I said, well, you know, what do you want to do? I said, the one thing I won't do today because I'm too tired is I won't drive you down to New York from Boston. You know, it's only a couple hours. Right, right. And I said, I'm a little too tired of that. And she goes, I want to see your airplane. And I go, okay. And we hopped in the car. We're driving back up to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is about 50 minute drive. Yeah. And about halfway through this drive, I realized she doesn't think I fly airplanes. She doesn't believe it. Okay. And I go, Oh, this is going to be epic. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> but she are you guys in the car alone? Yeah, we're in the car alone. So she thinks you're a liar, but she's willing to go into the middle of New Hampshire with you. Yes. Yeah. I just want to point out there are a lot of woods that you could disappear in. Oh, the White Mountains. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, there's plenty of places. New to Hampshire is like those who live in the West, the foliage of New Hampshire is. You could have a house 50 feet away from the road and not see it. The foliage could be so it. thick. Yeah. And the, and the fall foliage, we met in August too. So oh. the fall foliage is just gorgeous at the time. Yeah. Which if you've not been to New England, specifically New Hampshire, because I feel a loyalty to New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, you need to go in early fall. Yeah. Because the colors are, are just incredible. It ruins you. It ruins it, it you does. It all does. other falls. Yeah. So we're driving up there. And I realized she doesn't think I fly airplanes. And so I drive straight to the base and we get to the gate. And of course the gate guard salutes me. <laughs> All right. And she says, well, why did he do that? And he says, well, I'm an officer. Well, how does he know you're an officer? And I said, oh, well, the sticker right here in the window and in the, in the windshield, it's blue. And so that's how he knows I'm an officer. And now she's going, Ooh, there may oh. be more to this. <laughs> <laughs> So I had to get something out of our squadron building, which is literally right across from this hardened concrete bunker fenced in area with all of the alert airplanes in it. Uh -huh. And I took her to the maintenance hangar, what's called the DCM hangar, where you can put five, uh, let's see, three of my airplanes side by side. I mean, it's massive. It's huge. And my wow. airplane is a 707. So it's a big airplane. And we're walking in <laughs> and Colonel Harmon, who's the commander for all maintenance on base is walking out with his wife and his in-laws. And he goes, Hey, Mark, how you doing? I said, doing real good. Colonel Harmon. How are you doing? Uh -huh. He goes, doing good. Who's this? And I said, this is Valerie. Okay. And his wife goes. Yeah. Like, go, What's the rest of the relationship? Yeah. And I go, what? Okay. You know, typical dumb pilot. And he goes, she goes, girlfriend, fiance, wife. And I go, I don't know. And he goes, what do you mean you don't know? And I said, it's our first date. Yeah. And his wife, Colonel Harmon's wife goes, you brought this beautiful girl to this greasy, grimy hangar? <laughs> and I said, sir, ma'am, she doesn't believe I fly airplanes. <laughs> and he gets this smile on his face. He goes, isn't your airplane 8887, tail number 8887? I go, yeah, it sure is. And he goes, take her to the other side. I knew exactly what he meant. Oh, and so 
in the we go through the door there's a big partition go through the door and there's 8887 it's all taken apart it's going through what's called uh phase maintenance where they oh do its 2000 hour checkup so it's all taken apart they're replacing all kinds of stuff and everything i walk her around to the right side of the airplane i don't even look up i just point i go not only do I fly airplanes, I've got my name on one. <laughs> and underneath the window, it says- Because you're watching her face. You're watching- Yeah, I'm watching her face. And yeah. I, and I just point. And I said, not only do I fly airplanes, I've got my name on one. Because it says underneath the, the cockpit window, co-pilot, First Lieutenant Mark Hassera. Yeah. All right. So I give her a tour of the airplane. I walk her around downstairs. I take her upstairs, walk her around upstairs and- you know, this is where I sit. This is what I do. All these kinds of things, you know, take her to the back and in, in the boom pod where the boom operator lays down on his stomach and works the air refueling system and everything. And so we're standing in the middle of the airplane. And I said, well, you know, that's what I do. And this is my airplane. And this is what I do. Uh-huh. And she walks up, puts her arms around me and plants one right on my lips. Woo! First date. Yes. yes. <laughs> and in our culture, that's a big move. And I kind of back up a little bit and I go, what was that for? And she says, I've always wanted to kiss a pilot on his plane. Oh, so now she believes that I fly airplanes. Yeah, there you go. There you so go. <laughs> we, we only dated for about eight or 10 weeks. Yeah. And remember, I'm still flying during this time period and I'm still going on alert. So during this eight to 10 weeks, every third week, I'm on alert for a week and I'm doing off station stuff like down in Texas and, and everything. And and I'm, I'm buying her stuff. I'm bringing her stuff home from Texas and Louisiana and all these different places that I'm going to. And, and uh, she would come up and stay in my apartment with her friend, Nicole. And I happened to have been in the Pacific and I bought a, um, a wedding ring because it was so inexpensive. It, it, uh-huh. it, it was made by a Hong Kong jeweler. So it's got diamonds right. and, and really deep blue sapphires in it. Gorgeous. So yeah. When I asked her to marry me, that's what we did. We went downtown Boston to the Diamond District and had a um, engagement ring made, diamonds and sapphires. And then when we got married, we put that wedding band behind it. And that's that's oh. what she wore. Oh, that's so sweet. I love that. My husband and I were fast too. But yeah. when it's right, it's right. You know. Yeah, and, and see, that's what we felt too. And so I met her in August. Uh, asked her to marry me, uh, like I said, eight to 10 weeks later. And so, and then at so Christmas you got, time, you asked her at, eight to 10 weeks later to marry. How much longer after that did you guys get married? The following March. Okay. Okay. Good. So at Christmas time, um, she's at home and I fly out and it's meet the parents. Okay. And we're already uh-huh. engaged. We're already engaged. Okay. Right. This is right. Yeah. Running, all right. So it's kind of funny because her at that time period, of course, the family could go down to the gate and meet you at the gate and all those kinds of things. And she comes from a very large family. I mean, a very, not only uh, eight siblings, but they're very big. Okay. Danny's six foot seven. Mike is six foot. How tall are you, Mark? Because I know you're not, I mean, I'm five, nine. I'm six foot two. Yeah. I'm six foot two. So Anyway, you're not used to being the shorter guy. No, I'm not used to being the shorter guy. Okay. And I'm yeah. surrounded by all these brothers that are way bigger than I am. And we're walking from the gate to the car and everything. And her oldest brother, Mike says, well, if we don't like you, we'll just beat you up. 
<laughs> and I look at him and I said, Hey, that train's already left the station. We're getting married. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and, and it was like, mm, he can stand up for himself. Wow. You know, I'm an air force pilot. I deal yeah, with you, nuclear you weapons. have Come been, on. you know how to deal with a little bit of a teasing. Yeah. In yeah, the exactly. Don't exactly. you're well, well, exactly. And and because you have, you know, different commanders, aircraft commanders, squadron commanders, you know, you know how to stand up for yourself. Okay. Absolutely. So, and I love her brothers to death. You know, we have a great time whenever we get together. And how tall so. is Valerie? Oh, Val's about five nine. Yeah. Okay. Five ten. So, you know, yeah, I always too. I always uh whenever I see really, really tall guys with really short women, it makes me mad because my younger self was like yeah seriously you know when the like a six foot guy or yeah. six two guy was dating a five five woman i'm like are there going to be any tall women left for us tall girls because i'm technically <laughs> tall at five nine well and see two of my sons are uh six three six four all right i mean they're taller than their dad yeah so uh <laughs> that genetics came through yeah it did it did so um it's a good story Fun well, my son's taller than my husband because my dad's six three, but my father-in-law is shorter than my husband. So, you know, who knows? Who knows where all of that came from on his side? But well, and see, I was I was big when I was born too. Matter of fact, my call sign. Everybody has what we call a tactical call sign right. or nickname. So do okay? truckers, by the way. <laughs> yes, and and yeah. see the reason it's a little bit this, less official in the trucking world than it is. Well, and, and here's the reason for this, okay? And, and this is really kind of a, a, a good lesson for people out there. You know, everybody has seen the movie, all right? Top Gun, the first one and the last one, all right? Maverick, Goose, you know, wow. Rooster, all these different names, all right? And it does two things. First, when you're in combat, it creates a rankless environment. Oh, yeah. You could be flying with a brigadier general, but he's flying the same airplane doing the same mission you are. Right. So you call him by his call sign. All right. And that nickname is given to you for uh, some egregious thing you did or something weird about your character or whatever. Mine is Sluggo, S-L-U-G-G-O. Sluggo. Okay. Because when I was born, I weighed 10 pounds, 14 ounces and was 23 Ooh. inches tall. Oh, and so yeah. at pilot training at pilot training, the nurse had, you know, you have to bring your birth certificate with you. And the nurse has mine and goes 10 pounds, 14 ounces, 23 and a half inches tall. What a sluggo. You're not going to live that down. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And if you go to war and you have that call sign, then that call sign cannot be changed unless you do something really stupid and egregious. <laughs> and I have been to a call sign change during combat. Okay. And this is a really good story. Really funny story. Um, an F-16 pilot during the war in Kosovo sees these things on the ground and he thinks they're vehicles, they're trucks or something like that. And he has this argument kind of back and forth with his wingman. No, they're vehicles. No, they're vehicles. No, they're vehicles. And he says, hey, we found this group of vehicles. They're here. And, and it was an area where the Yugoslavs had been congregating. And, and so it fit. Mm -hmm. And he gets permission to drop two 500-pound laser-guided bombs 
on the group of vehicles. Well, as the bomb is coming down, the heads of the cows go like this. Uh, <laughs> oh, so that's that 18,000 cows that just blew up in Texas. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, there's about seven or nine of them, I think, in this group. All right. Oh. And so... Of course, this is on video because they're looking through the, what's called the targeting pod. That because the on the bombs, they have, the bombs. A, they have a camera, right? Correct. They have a seeker that just sees the, the laser dot and it's going just to wherever the laser dot is. And it hits the cows. All right. And of course, there's a, what shall we say, conflagration. <laughs> okay. Oh, I was going to say a barbecue. <laughs> yeah. Well, <clears throat> thank you for saying that because... On Friday nights, in fighter squadrons, they always get together and uh, they have their rituals that they do for each of the squadrons. Well, there's this big banner that's announcing we're going to rename this guy, okay, because of what he did. Right, right. And walking into the five tenth fighter squadron buzzard bar, there's okay. a big banner that says the Great Buzzard Bovine Barbecue across the top of the door all right and so everybody's like going okay and bovine is underlined and so sure enough they get in there they show the video over and over and over again all right and as the bombs come the, the two bombs are coming down okay two 500 pound bombs are coming down you know the heads move okay and look up the tails start swinging and everybody realizes and, and of course you can't call the bombs back right 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 and they shack the the group of cows. So was his new name barbecue or bovine? Bovine. Oh my! His heaven. new call sign was bovine. Well, I didn't know, but that makes a lot of sense that it would be to help protect them during. Because if you were like, "Hey, Captain," then they'd know to go for that plane. Exactly. And exactly. Leadership and, and, intact is important in a combat yeah. situation. And and usually it's like a one or two syllable name, something you can say very quickly over the radio all right and you know sluggo that's easy to say bovine easy to say right, right? and um, also um easy to differentiate what you're hearing exactly because if exactly. you had a mat and a mark you know yeah oh three and, Daves. And, and and see i've never heard of any call sign mat mark or whatever it's always some type of nickname that you are given for whatever reason and and one of my best friends, his call sign was Haas because he looked like Haas Cartwright from the from the movie or from uh -huh. the series. All right, um, very dear friend of mine, F eighteen pilot in the Navy, call sign Moose. All right, hey, Big guy. Hey, that was that was my nickname. Moose. Really? I had Moose as a nickname for a while. Um, it might have done to do with my sturdy shoulders and my love of Moose. <laughs> and I would put my hair up just to like uh -huh. be silly about it. I'd kind of put it up in like these kind of crazy buns on the side just to like play up that I was called Moose. But it was only something I was called a little bit in Alaska. But the, the well, boyfriend I had at the time was very adamant that it was not a good name for me. But I thought <laughs> it was fantastic. <laughs> and then my, my nickname on my mission for my church was uh, Mahaganaga which is definitely would have been a bad call sign because my maiden Takes name- Takes too long to say over the radio. Yeah, my maiden name <laughs> is M-A-U-G-H-A-N. And, you uh, know, it's it's all silent, you know, it's uh, and it would just be Mon. 
but the deaf people not understanding the nuances of how those would be a silent, they'd be like, Maga, 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 you know, so anyway, it became Mahaganaga. And <laughs> <laughs> see, that's how people get nicknames, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, and, now I'm just called hot mess. I'll take it. I see that. I see the book behind yeah. you there too. Who who am I to disagree? And it was after um it was I could not figure out what to name my book. I just could not figure it out. And my girlfriend's asking me what it's about. And I'm like, well, it's about, you know, embracing what's truly hot and unique about you and your spark and you know, and like what makes you hot. And she's like, really hotness, what would you call your book? Hotness. I wonder what you would call that. And I was like, oh. There it is. There you go. There it is. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. And see, my book uh, was published in November 2017 on Veterans Day. I'm the author that every writer hates. I didn't have one rejection notice and got picked up by Simon and Schuster. Well, because you tell a story like nobody's business, <laughs> well, which everybody uh, um, should listen to his podcast, but I have seen speakers. Um, Mark and I know each other from the National Speaker Association. Yeah. I have seen speakers stay up till what, two in the morning? Yeah. Yeah. Riveted, riveted. Now to get a bunch of speakers to be quiet is an accomplishment in and of itself, but up till two in the morning, you know, when we are all over 40, yeah. I mean, it's because you have a lot of great information. So I remember you had a story ready for us for today. I do. Yeah, it was one of those. It was probably the one time where I thought, I'm not going to live through this. Mm. And it involves Hawaii. Okay. All things, so. Okay. And I fly a very old airplane, the airplane, there are airplanes like mine is and you can see one above my head here on the sticker on the wall, which is another thing we'll talk about. I have a side hustle that I that I draw these airplanes. Oh, that's so cool. And we took off out of Hawaii. We were sw swapping out airplanes. Living in Okinawa, of course, there is a very corrosive sea salt spray everywhere. And so they have to swap the airplanes out every two years. Really? So, yeah, because of the of the corrosive nature of of the, the air and the and the sea salt. Wow. So we were going to Grand Forks, North Dakota to pick up two airplanes. And my crew hopped in the airplane and we took off and went to Hawaii. And we were staying in Hawaii. And this was coming up on Memorial weekend, where of course, the military closes down for like three days, four days. So we were trying to get back as fast as we could. And we left Hawaii on uh, a Wednesday and as we're flying and climbing up to our cruising altitude the airplane starts depressurizing and you can feel it in your ears oh, obviously now my ear hurts <clears throat> well you can feel it in your ears <laughs> uh -huh. right and we look down at the gauge that tells us and we can see the needle moving the wrong direction as the airplane's altitude is fast approaching the cabin altitude and we're like what in the world and so we level off and pull the throttles back and the airplane repressurizes. And again, you can feel it in your ears or like, mm -hmm. Ooh, this is weird. So now you're going slower. 
we're going slower and, and using more gas. Um, yeah, but my airplane doesn't use a lot of gas anyway. Uh, it, I say that, okay. My airplane takes off with 180,000 pounds of gas, which is more gas than you'll use in your car in 27 years. Yeah. In your family yeah. vehicle, okay. Yeah. So it's not a problem that we're giving away our oil, no, strategic, no, oil huh. strategic reserve. That's not a problem at all if we were ever to go to war and there's only three wars pending. But don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I told you, don't get me on my political soapbox. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I, I said so, nothing. I'm just so, what I'm just a makeup artist in South Jordan that wrote books. I mean, what do I know? <laughs> we pull the throttles back and the airplane repressurizes, and I go, oh, this is this is weird. This is not in any of our books. I've never had this problem before. And I've got 26 passengers in the back to include a three-month-old baby that's coming back to Okinawa from meeting grandparents for the very first time. Mm. And we can't get the airplane to pressurize. So I turn around and say- And you're okay, over the ocean. Yeah. We're, we're about 150 miles west of Hawaii, out over the ocean, deep ocean. And I say- we and do you have life rafts and all of that? For we that have thing. all that stuff. Okay. Absolutely. And we've got personal oxygen kits for the 26 packs. We got all this kind of stuff. But the airplane is not pressurizing and I'm not flying to Okinawa in an airplane that won't pressurize. So I turn around, and come back to Hawaii. Well, come in the next day and in the aircraft forms, it said could not duplicate. And the people are telling me we couldn't duplicate your problem. We couldn't, we couldn't figure out what was wrong. And I says, yeah, you couldn't duplicate it on the ground. I bet you I can duplicate it in the air. Uh -huh. And so I yeah. say, we're not taking passengers. We're going to take off. We're not taking passengers. And that really made this one Lieutenant Colonel mad because he had all these passengers that wanted to get home to Okinawa. And he comes running up the stairs. You guys never take passengers. I'm so sick of you, Kadena guys coming through. And I said, look, we couldn't pressurize this airplane yesterday. It says in here in the forms, I couldn't duplicate it. I says, yeah, on the ground, but I bet you I can duplicate it in the this air. This one's are a little bit different up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things are a little bit different when, you know, lift is going under the wings and the engines are running hot. So he marches off the airplane after being mad at me. I'm calling your commander, all these kinds of things. You know, I'm just a young captain and he's lieutenant colonel. And I go, yeah, go ahead, call him. His name is Gino Redmond. Here's his phone number. Right, and, right. And we go. And sure enough, I tell everybody, okay, there's about eight of us on the plane. Have a personal oxygen kit with you in case something happens. And sure enough, going through 9,000 feet, the airplane starts depressurizing again. Oh. And I'm thinking, all right, let's play with this a little bit and figure out what's going on. And I had everybody put their oxygen masks on, which was my first mistake. It was the right thing to do, but it was my first mistake. Uh, okay. So we keep going and I get up to about 16,000 feet because above 18,000 feet, if you have a, a airplane depressurize, it's considered a physiological incident and nobody can fly until they go through the altitude chamber and get checked out again to make sure you don't have a uh, oh. physiological incident, like the bends and stuff like divers get. Okay? Right, right, right. So I'm at 16,000 feet and we're playing with everything. We're doing the alternate preservations, everything. Okay. And we can't figure out what's wrong, Lita. And I hear footsteps behind me running on the wood floor of one of the crew chiefs running up. And he comes up to me, 
Captain Hissera, turn around, turn around. I know what's wrong. Turn around now. And I look back through the door and there's three crew chiefs, two of them wrenching up the floor. One of them's putting on the firefighter's mask and pulling a pin out of an extinguisher. Ooh, okay. Okay. And we call it intuitive uh, expertise. Okay. You intuitively know that something's wrong back there. You don't know what it is yet, but you know that you've got to turn around. You've got to get off of oxygen. So I turn, make a left-hand turn, go down 9,000 feet. Why was oxygen a bad thing? I'm going to get to that here in just a second. Okay, sorry. So I turn, I tell the co-pilot, squawk 7700, which is the emergency code, and push flash so that the radar controllers know exactly where the airplane is. Okay. And we start turning back toward Honolulu, going down to 9,000 feet. We're 210 miles away. Okay. Okay. So we're out way out over the ocean, west of Honolulu. How many my I mean, how many hours, minutes? Um, I slow the airplane down to 255 knots because that is the best structural integrity airspeed of the airplane. Okay. All right. We're going about 275. So I slow down about 20 knots in the turn. So we're going down to 9,000 feet because below 10,000 feet, we can take our oxygen masks off. And we get down to 10, uh, below 10,000 feet, we take our oxygen masks off. And I immediately know what the problem is because I can okay. smell it. Okay. They're back there wrenching up the floor. And as the floor comes up, flames go everywhere because we have a plywood floor everywhere singes the hair on their arms everything and they're putting out the fire all right the plywood is literally burning in the back of the airplane and and it smells like pine burning and and like a a fireplace oh no and you really do fly with your five senses including your sense of smell Right. Because if you have a fire, that's why the oxen was bad. You couldn't smell exactly. We had masked one of our senses and we couldn't smell the wood burning. None of us. And now you've got all this airflow feeding the fire. Exactly. You've got eight men who are sitting on a floor that's burning. Correct. So once we get the plywood put out, that crew chief comes and says, You need to come see this. And I said, what's the matter? He goes, you need to come see this. So an airplane is just like your house. It has ducting under the floor that pressurizes the airplane, oxygen throughout the airplane, just like in your house, like okay. the heater ducts under your floor in your house. What had happened was we had what was called a bleed duct failure, where two holes on both sides had popped out. And 1,400 degree air straight off the engines What had started the floor on fire. So those were there to like move the hot air to the back of the plane? Yes. So what happens is is it comes off the engines, goes through what's called an air cycle machine that has a duct that goes straight outside. So cold air from outside is going through this air cycle machine to cool it off. Okay. Okay. So it's the failure is in front of that cool off machine. Mm. So it's hot air right off the engines at 1400 degrees 
on both sides. Wow. <clears throat> I come back there and he says, put your glove on, stick your hand down here, but don't leave it down there. And so I put my fire retardant leather gloves on. I go like this. And I mean, it's just super hot. It's like dipping your hand in a fire. All right. He says, it's on both sides. Take a look. Oh, man. So the hot bleed air is blowing out of these two holes that somebody had tried to cover <gasps> with putty or something like that. And had blown it out with putty, and with some kind of putty or some kind of fiberglass It had blown it out. And now that hot air is blowing on the cables for both the pilot and co-pilot, which makes the airplane go up and down. But that's not the real problem. The real problem is that air is blowing on the top of the forward body fuel tank that has 18,000 pounds of gas in it. Oh, okay. Okay. Gas is bad. It can gas catch is bad. fire really yes. fast. So That's now you understand. So now you understand why I felt, oh my gosh, we might not make it home from this. Right. Because it's not just a matter of keeping your plane, it's a matter of controlling the airplane the, and fuel. The hoping the fuel doesn't catch fire. Correct. But now we have all of it venting into the back of the airplane. And of course, the back of the airplane is really hot now, too. You know, it's like 120 degrees back there. Yeah. But we turn and we come back in. And of course, the air traffic controllers are going, Tora 5-4, state nature of emergency, number of souls on board and fuel remaining. That's the common thing they ask. Now, the when thing they is, see if you'd had code. all those passengers, you would have had nowhere to put them. Exactly. And can you imagine that mother with a three-month-old child watching these crew chiefs wrench up the floor, see flames going everywhere, and then extinguishing it? Yeah, no, no, you don't. Exactly. Yeah. Which is why I said, we ain't taking packs. Of course, I had no idea this was going to happen. An extreme but... heat, an extreme cold for babies. <laughs> exactly. Life exactly. alter them. Exactly. You know? Okay. Yeah. And so just even the if the fright... mom would be okay, just just that extreme heat experience and just the experience of being back there as a space a passenger on an airplane that's on fire <laughs> yeah. is terrifying terrifying okay yeah. and i'm the guy flying the airplane and i'm terrified so in any emergency situation in an airplane we're taught to handle it with three words aviate navigate communicate. Every pilot, you walk up to any pilot and they'll say, and you just say, what's the three words that begins with aviate? And they'll go navigate, communicate. Every pilot knows this. Got it. Every flyer knows this. Okay. So the first thing I have to do, aviate, I have to fly the airplane. It doesn't matter what's going on in the back. I have to fly the airplane. My co-pilot and I have to fly the airplane. Right. And we realize that we have to get the airplane down, turned around, and back to Honolulu. And of course, Honolulu air traffic control is saying, hey, we see you guys in a descending turn. What's going on? And they keep coming after me. But my first job is to is fly, the, fly the jet. And when we get in certain situations in our lives, we sometimes forget to fly the plane. Right. We let go of the controls and there's make some of reactive decisions exactly. instead of making what's going to help me the most. Yes. Exactly. Okay. This is one of my like you're you're stepping on my soapbox there because I 
gotta be, if you're not being proactive, you're not living your life. Exactly. Okay. And of course, as pilots, we're taught to put that fear and compartmentalize it. And you know how guys compartmentalize real well. All right. And, and I'm not saying that to be sexist. I'm just saying that because no, as it's, pilots, it's literally a fact. Women's brains bounce quicker between tasks, which is great for traditional exactly. male, female jobs, but men can literally, they have a fight with their wife in the morning. Don't think about it all day, do their job. She comes home. She's been stewing about it all day. This is it's it's, I don't know why it's become sexism because it's a biological fact of how our brains work. Exactly. And so I have to navigate, I have to fly the airplane first. And I had a great instructor when I went through pilot training, Marcus Carlton, man, I wish I could find him. And he had five rules of flying. Okay. And rule number one, fly the jet. You cannot relinquish control of the aircraft because if you run into the ground, you will be dead anyway. Right. right? And you have to, physically, mentally fly the airplane and deal with the problem in the back of the jet. All right. So air traffic control is finally bugging me. And, and I finally tell them Honolulu center, Tora five, four is fighting a fire in the cargo compartment of the airplane stand by. In other words, shut up. <laughs> we have a fire. Yes. And we have gas. 180,000, 180. <laughs> We had 130,000 pounds of gas yeah. and 18,000 pounds of gas in the forward body tank. Yeah. And normally on an air traffic control frequency, there's a lot of chatter because they're talking back and forth and all that kind of stuff. It went quiet for about 90 seconds. It was like everybody was waiting to hear the airplane blow up. Oh. But I'm in this, again, intuitive expertise thinking I have to get the airplane down below 9,000 feet and I have to turn it back toward Honolulu all these things. Okay. And again, you have to compartmentalize that fear and just put it behind you because eight or nine people's lives depend on you right. as the aircraft commander, the guy in charge of the airplane to do the right thing. Right. And of course we do it as a crew. Yeah. And we call it cockpit resource management. So I'm flying the jet, Johnny Bauman, my um, co-pilot, Johnny Boffman is navigating and communicating, doing all those kinds of things. And I mentioned to you, I put in the emergency code and pushed the flash sign because I knew from the fright on that crew chief's face, something was really wrong. And I wanted them to be able to come find the pieces in case we blew up. And by doing that, they knew exactly where we were right. and where the emergency started because he says, Hey, Kobe, five, four, we see you squawk an emergency with a flash, you know, state, you know, state nature of emergency, number of souls on board. You don't put that on for no reason. No, you don't put that on for any reason because now they know we have a problem, but let me get back to navigate. So I immediately put in the electronic navigation frequency of the navigation. Um, what's called a vortex in the middle of the runways at Honolulu. So all the needles in the airplane swung. Okay, so right that's to putting like an autopilot on. So if something happens to you. <clears throat> it's not the autopilot. It's that all of the navigation is now pointing directly at Honolulu. Okay. I know exactly where it is. 210 miles away on this heading. Because that's where the needles are all pointing. Okay. By putting in that frequency, 
all the needles swing to Honolulu. I know exactly where it is. I know exactly how far away I am. So I know how much time it's going to take me, all those kinds of things. I know the course and I'm on my way back. That's navigate. And the reason that's important in your life is this is what setting goals is all about. Mm -hmm. And you have to figure out, okay, this is my goal. This is my stake in the ground. This is where I need to go. Now, mm -hmm. what do I do to fly the plane to and get with, it there? With a goal is purpose. Exactly. Having a purpose. And so many people are still trying to figure out. And I think that's why depression is on the increase is because we have taken out any long-term purpose for people. You know, those of us that are religious, we have an eternal purpose. We have eternal value. And you take people away from that you just simply by being you has eternal value. And yeah, you're going to feel pretty rudderless. Correct. See and, how and I used COVID. another, an, oh, oh, rudder. Oh, dang. That's a, that's a boat analogy. <laughs> no, uh -uh, because that's a rudder on the airplane. We call okay, it good. Yeah, I, I knew that. That's why yeah, I made that aeronautical analogy. We even have rudder pedals to make the thing swing back and forth. Okay, thank you. Okay. I was like, for a minute, I thought I messed up on that. I no, you didn't. I should have just gone confidently in. No, you yeah. didn't. The rudder on the airplane is what helps uh, point the nose. Yeah, but right. I think you know, so often people talk about goals, but if a goal, and I agree, but your goal has to be rooted in true purpose. Because if your mm -hmm. goal is, oh, I want to make um, half a million dollars or a million dollars or whatever. If it's just for the pursuit of a million dollars, a lot of things will distract you from that. Mm -hmm. But if you know, if it's for your family, if it's to build you know, yeah. a business, it's to pursue a passion, it'll happen. Exactly. And that's why the why is so important. Ah, see, there you go. There you go. <laughs> the why of why I had to get that airplane on the ground was we'll be safe. Yeah. So my purpose and my why was recover the airplane and all of us live. <laughs> and by putting that frequency into that box and all of the needles pointing to Honolulu, right. I now have a purpose and a why. Yeah. And a direction. All right. Because everything is pointing at. Honolulu at Honolulu International Airport. Daniel and uh, hard Airport. times focus us really well. Yes, they do. Yeah. And and I think that's a, another part of I'm going to regress here and get back to the fear. All right. People react to fear in many different ways. And <clears throat> I love this one. Um, it's on YouTube. Will Smith talks about when he went skydiving for the very first time. And he's like going. And he says, on the other side of your greatest fear is your greatest bliss. Amen. When mm -hmm. you can overcome your greatest fears in your life, you have this euphoric feeling of bliss and happiness. Mm -hmm. And so I hope all of your listeners remember that on the other side of your greatest fears is the most blissful, great feeling you'll ever have. And you can imagine when I put the wheels on the ground and taxied the airplane off the runway, how we all felt. 
Yeah. We just oh, wait, cheated. You survived? We, just cheated. <laughs> we just cheated. Yeah. We just cheated yeah. death. Okay. So navigate is really important in our daily lives because, you know, tune into that frequency and your why and your purpose and swing your needles to that goal or purpose, whatever it is. And again, it may only be a one or two degree heading change. And it may be one or 2% on the thrust of moving toward that. And you'll get there. Yeah. And once you navigate past all those fears, again, you'll feel this great euphoric feeling of bliss. All right. And, and you are exactly right. You know, why do I want a million dollars? Is it the money? No. Because money because, has no value other than what you place in it. Exactly. And, you know, they're and, finding, they've done these studies where I just find it so fascinating that um, they're finding out that um, through different studies that meaningless sex and hookups don't actually leave the person feeling that rewarded. Hmm, how could, what kind of system could we set up that let people have compassion, communication, commitment, and have a consistent sexual partner? What could we set up that would provide that for people that would give them long-term happiness? Hmm, I don't know. I'll keep thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, I know it's worked for you and I. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like people are searching for something new. And yet it's the oldest institution yes. that has ever existed that every yes. single culture, even though they don't speak the same language, don't even view God the same. Interesting. They all have a God mm -hmm. has had family and marriage be the foundation of that. And we're trying to come up with something new and funny enough, it doesn't have enough purpose to navigate us happily into our lives. And it's been working all the way back to Adam and Eve. Yeah, it's been working. And even if you don't believe in Adam and Eve, it's just something that has existed in every culture. Absolutely. I personally think that's because God was like, hey, guys, good idea. And um, it's worked well enough that even people have changed or altered how they perceive different things, that institution has remained the same. And people are always like, well, what about the marriages that don't work? I'm like, but the vast majority of them do. Yes. They just don't write history books about when everything goes well. Because nobody wants to hear about it. It doesn't yeah. create ratings. Well, drama is so much more interesting. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? You know, I, I want to get back to, you were talking about, you know, why do I want a million dollars? And here behind me is a picture of a very, very dear friend of mine. Well, wait, before we get to that, we have to finish navigate okay. aviate and you're right. Let's do that. Yeah. Okay. So we've got aviate, we've got navigate now communicate. Mm -hmm. We are communicating people. We love to communicate. We love to talk. We love to tell stories. We need uh, to be understood. Yeah. We need to be understood. Okay. And I told you Honolulu air traffic control kept calling us state nature of emergency number of souls on board fuel remaining kept doing that and there's a reason that communicate is last in the airplane because first of all you have to fly the jet you have to get the airplane on the ground yeah but all of these things were happening at the same time and i already mentioned to you 
air traffic control knew we had a problem because I put that 7700 code in there and pushed flash. And on their radar screen, there was this big, huge, bright spot that says this airplane's in trouble. I didn't even say a word, but they already knew instinctively, why does Tora 5-4 squawking emergency with a flash? And of course, they want to find out. Right. But that but that wasn't the priority right then. But now it was. And that's when I told them, we're fighting a fire in the cargo compartment of the airplane. Stand by. And so immediately they knew, okay, they're really busy right now. We'll let them alone. And when I finally got leveled off at 9,000 feet, pointed back toward Honolulu, I told them, here's the nature of our emergency. We have a fire. We have a bleed duct failure under the floor, started the floor on fire. I have hot air blowing on the elevator cables and the forward body tank that's got 18,000 pounds of gas in it. Mm -hmm. I need present position direct to the end of the runway at Honolulu, clear everybody out. And you need the end of the runway. So if you blow up, <laughs> yeah, you're not taking out. <clears throat> more people well and and the goal is to get the wheels on the end of the runway you know the tires on the end of the runway too okay yeah and so they started moving traffic out of our way so that we could make this beeline back to honolulu because as i told you we've got that radio frequency in that navigation frequency in and we know exactly where it is we know exactly what heading we're on and you could hear all of them moving people out of the way and everything As a matter of fact British Airways, when they're flying intercontinental, you know, uh, flights, their call sign is Speedbird. Speedbird. Yeah, Speedbird. Okay. And when so we finally get, fast. so yeah, well, and they used to fly the Concorde, which is that supersonic transport, that supersonic airline, and so they use the the call sign Speedbird, and of course, well, not Speedbird, it's Speedbird, Speedbird, Speedbird. <laughs> Speedbed 102. And there was a flight going into Honolulu coming from Hong Kong. And when we were finally got everything settled down, British Airways flight 102 came over the radio and said, Tora 54, this is Speedbed 102. Are you chaps okay? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and we go, got everything put out in the back. We're all good. Gonna take our time, kind of playing with a few things here but and yeah, breathing we're, we're breathing and 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 <laughs> and uh we aren't sucking up seat cushion anymore and those kinds of things and he goes <laughs> look forward to meeting you chaps on the ground drinks are on us you know <laughs> and we just thanks feedback but you know all the way back now you have all of this help on the ground saying okay what else do you need what's going on and and you're communicating to people you're telling them your plan Right. Here is my plan. My plan is to fly present position direct to the end of the runway, put this airplane on the ground as fast as we can, have the fire guys waiting for us when we turn off the runway, which they did. Fire truck. Because you're now seats. worried about hitting the ground also means sparks. Well, not only that, but it's still hot back there because the engines are running. Right. All right. And there's still 1400 degree air blowing around inside the airplane. And you're just communicating what your plan is. 
And this, I think, is one of those things in our daily lives that we need to do is how do you communicate your plan to your own mind that is more fearful than positive? Mm. Because how many times have we heard you are your own worst enemy? Right. And I have a certain declarations that I go through every day to kind of reset my mind that helps me communicate to my brain, you can do this. You are in a very, very bad situation, but you have the training, you have the crew, and you have the knowledge to get this airplane back on the ground, to get out of a very tough situation. Mm. And I was in probably one of the toughest situations. So it's like, you've got all this fear that your plan has to push through where you can suppress that fear with, but you have training and you have a plan Mm -hmm. and the application to that being, you have a purpose, you got this, you know? Yeah. And you're communicating that not only to your own brain, but to the brains of those eight or nine people that are in the airplane too. And the people on the ground. And the people on the ground, okay? Because we're all experts in our individual fields. But now, collectively, by communicating, this is what happened, this is the plan, this is how we're going to get back on the ground, you are collectively bringing that team of experts together to help you recover the aircraft from this very bad situation. And a lot of times in our individual lives, we don't do that because we think I can deal with this, particularly type A personality pilots. And I've had one situation in my life where aviate, navigate, communicate became really important. And that's when my son for 14 months was battling cancer. Yeah. Okay. And (laughs) I should have listened more to my wife because she was more in tune with the Holy ghost and the spirit and the things and the directions we needed to go while Jeffrey was sick. But I'm telling you on a daily basis, I was going through, okay, Mark, aviate, navigate, communicate. There's another thing that I love about this and how you're applying it is there's an implied humility. Yes. If it's just fly the plane or fly the jet, well, I'm in control, but when it's navigate, where am I going? How am I going to get there? And then having to express that to someone else that there's, I'm not even sure if I can put it into words, but it just feels like if you'd only do one of those ego can get in the way pretty easily. Oh yeah. But if you do all three of them, you are having to use different parts of your brain Mm -hmm. and there is going to be a, um, a humility in, in, is this the right thing that I should be doing? And assessing that. And I think what made me think that is how, when you talked about your, your wife and listening to her in, in, you know, the hardest trial of your lives. Because there's a real vulnerability issue to this, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you've buried a child and I only saw my child suffer for about half, well, I mean, she struggled her whole life for those 54 days, but it was only about um, her dying for the last two thirds of it. Um, and so when I think of parents having to watch a child that could communicate the level of pain, mm-hmm. um, 
yeah it's very different isn't it <laughs> it's and, it's uh it uh i could see that my daughter suffered and there were some interchanges with us but i had um i had different choices because she was never breathing on her own yeah and um you know it it almost feels like i got i hate to say it like this because it wasn't easy but, no, you know, having to have friends say goodbye to your kid, you know, I just, ah, uh, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just and, and wrenching. And, and like I said, there's a vulnerability thing that goes on where you literally have to say, I don't know how to handle this. Right. I need help. I need oh. help with this. Okay. And the problem yeah. that we had in this airplane, <clears throat> the interesting thing about this, that crew chief that came running up to the cockpit had had the exact same problem seven years before. That's how he knew what was going on because he, uh, saw the, he saw the paint bubbling on the floor. The fire was about to burn through the plywood. So the paint was bubbling on the floor and he had perfect. had that problem seven years before and he knew exactly what was happening. Perfect lead into humility that yes. you may, even if you're in charge, cause you're the pilot, it's your life, somebody else's wisdom and experience, um, you know, could come in handy here. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. He knew more than I did. Right. He had better knowledge at that time period. And so we've covered aviate, navigate, and communicate. Uh, here's another thing that I learned in the military that I taught. It's called the elements of the decision maker's dilemma. It's risk time, quality of knowledge, and outcomes. Those are the mm -hmm. four elements. If you have quality knowledge that comes in a timely manner, you can reduce risk because you act with more certainty with a reduction in second and third order effects. Mm, okay. All right. Yeah. The Brigadier General in the Army taught us this. And when we go through these tough times in our lives, we go through this risk, time, quality of knowledge, and outcomes. Kind okay, of so risk, time, quality of knowledge, quality of knowledge, and outcomes. And outcomes. Mm -hmm. And our brains naturally go through this risk, time, quality of knowledge analysis when we're thinking about outcomes. And my mind was doing the same thing when we're dealing with this problem in the airplane. I had to aviate, navigate, and communicate, but at the same time, okay, what are the risks? I had timely information from that crew chief that came running up from the back because he had quality knowledge. He had right, right, seven right. years before, all right? But my outcomes were either we all blow up and fall into the ocean or I get the airplane on the ground mm. and we live to fly another day. And my purpose and my why was I am not going to die in this airplane. <laughs> yeah, very clear. And isn't that, mm -hmm. um, you know, when you're losing a child, how it focuses what's really important. Yes, it does. How you're going to blow up in a plane that focuses what's really important. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's does. why they say there are no atheists in foxholes. Correct. You know, and in our society, <laughs> we're seeing this huge distraction mm -hmm. away from, you know, what is the purpose that makes humans happy. And it's all by design. Uh, and there's so many distractions right now, mm -hmm. you know, and 
and where where do you find that quality knowledge how right. do you confirm that certainty because there's a lot of uncertainty right yeah now, all right yeah and we like to have certainty but we live in a very uncertain world and i just want to say that again where do you find that quality knowledge and this is what's uh humbling and frustrating and empowering all at the same time is each individual gets to find that for themselves yes and that in itself is a journey of yeah. navigate, navigate and communicate isn't it yeah finding that and yeah and where are you going for that knowledge and mm -hmm. This is why, like in my sexual abuse prevention, and we have to, we have to go soon because dang it, I've got another thing. I could talk to you forever. We'll just have to have you on again, Mark. But um, that if there's a, one of the fundamental principles I teach to keep your child safe from an abuser, and this could be a sexual abuser, a physical abuser, a mental abuser, is that they are able to differentiate between the feelings that are good that we would describe as, you know, happy or cheerful or um, peaceful. Um, which those of us that are religious know come from the Holy Ghost or the light of Christ, yes. right? And to the feelings that come from who I call who he who is poopy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Satan, because he wants everything to stink, right? Mm -hmm. yes. um, you know, what do you feel like when you're in conflict? And the thing is, both of those feelings are what we would call addictive. Mm -hmm. And when I you agree. have some of it, you want more. So how do you help direct your children to for differentiate the difference, not for behavior or performance, but for their own safety and peace of mind. Great words of wisdom. Well, I've said them before. I'm kind of passionate about it, but I love this aviate, navigate and communicate. And of course that applies to marriage, that applies yeah. to our daily lives, looking at your goals. Um, you know, you can question yourself if you can't, if you're not willing to communicate what your long-term mm -hmm. goals are, you know, there's a lot of lessons in that. And I would tell all of your listeners to write them down, write all this down. When, when you have. You were just telling me how you have um, a, a journal that you record those sacred, sacred impressions. Okay. He's holding up. Four, four of eight and a half by 11 inch thick journals. Here's four of 28 that I have finished. Four of 28 of those. Yes. Yeah. What a legacy of, we're definitely going to have to have you gun. You have so many amazing stories. Um, I encourage all of you listening to go and look up Mark. Um, your, uh, we'll have in the show notes where you can find his podcast, his books. Yeah. Um, he's somebody that is so worth following. He happens to also be a big deal on TikTok, even though he's not 20, you know, <laughs> and somebody that, um, I'm going to cry a little bit here, but somebody that I'm really thankful to have in my life, Mark, because I know that you have the ability to truly care about those in your life. And I'm honored to be your friend and, um, and a mentee in a lot of ways. So thank you, Mark, for the good that you are in the world. I appreciate that. Thank you very much for those kind words. Well, I, I, I became a TikTok star by default <laughs> because of my son. Yeah. My, my, my son 
kept telling me, dad, you need to be on TikTok. And I'm like, why? <laughs> For what purpose? All right. And I started last October, October 17th. All right. And uh, I got a little thing from TikTok about two weeks ago that said, congratulations. You have 165 posts. You have 57 million views and 77,000 followers in five wow. months. There you go. Six months now. Yeah. Well, and you were becoming a TikTok shorts. star. Yeah. I was feeling really healing my foot surgery. I feel like I wasted my time now. <laughs> but you know what? Again, it's one of those things where I was, I'll be honest with you and vulnerable with you. I was fearful. I'm like, why, why would I do this? You know, and this is something for young people. And, and this is something that I don't know a lot about, but fortunately my son, Ryan is really, really good at this digital marketing thing. And so is my wife. My wife is really good at it. And she's kind of my marketeer also. Awesome. And, yeah. Uh, and you just jump into it, you know? Well, you've been able to put a great message out. And I confess to you yeah. that I am working on how I can get my message of sexual abuse prevention out better. And um, so I've communicated Yes. And I'm working on some navigation Yes. and I got to figure out how to fly the jet. So I'm doing it in the backward order, but you know, we'll figure it out. Right. But see, <laughs> the thing is, you know, the why the how will come when the why is cemented in your mind. And I don't know how many times I've heard that from people like Tony Robbins, Dean Graziosi, Kirk Duncan, all these different people that I've listened to and have been my mentor where they said, once you solidify why you're doing something, the how usually follows fairly closely. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And you've already talked about how you are putting together this program that teaches young people, hey, I have experience with this. I've experienced it myself. And here are the tools that you need in your kit bag to fight this very evil thing in the world. Yeah. And again, it comes with this why and this purpose. And <clears throat> I, I had no idea how to illustrate airplanes, you know, two years ago, I had no idea how to do it, but I taught myself how to do it by bringing a few friends of mine that had been doing it for a very long time, figuring out an Adobe illustrator, spending a lot of time down at the, uh, graphics lab at uh, BYU and I learned how to do it. And yeah. that's what you've got to do is, is sometimes put that fear behind you. Oh man, I'm learning something new to where it really becomes fun. And Oh man, the stories that I have heard from my customers of these things are amazing. That's so cool. And uh, one in particular, I did a six part series on a battle on top of a mountain called Tacker Gar. It's called the Battle of Roberts Ridge. A Navy SEAL fell off the back of a helicopter that was about to land because it got hit hard by 75 hardcore Al-Qaeda and Taliban guys on top of this mountain that they didn't know where they were there. Oh. And uh, this SEAL, okay, uh, Neil Roberts, falls 10 feet off the back of the helicopter right into the middle of this hardcore al-qaeda camp oh. and and he doesn't live through it no oh dang it 
But, I don't like those stories. But the thing is, they don't know that he's not alive. And two Congressional Medal of, of Honor are awarded for what happened during that 17 hour battle. One of them to an Air Force combat controller who unfortunately did not live through the battle. And one to the Navy SEAL commander of the group who is alive and well, his name is Britt Slavinsky. And go listen to those six part series of my podcast because you'll unsurmountable odds Mm -hmm. and they live through this thing because mm. again they aviate navigate communicate and i talked to some of the pilots that were um, supporting the guys on the ground i actually have video from the airplanes uh from their systems showing them doing things and this one guy i interviewed i did a, a print for uh, the airplane that he was flying had never shot the gun in the airplane at a ground target before and now he's laying bullets down 80 meters from the good guys and mm. he's never shot the gun at the ground before <laughs> ever and when you get in these drastic situations particularly when you're trying to help people around you you will do things that you've probably never done before but you realize you have to do it in order to be able to save these people's lives right right and and this guy's name is Chris Russell, call sign Spliff. And, and you can go back. It was sometime last year I did this. But all of us get in these kinds of situations. And again, it's a vulnerability thing where we need help. And what I was going to mention to you was Rush is a very, was a very dear friend. And we were having dinner at his house. And he told the family, he says, I'm going to talk to your dad here for just a second, okay? And he turned to me and goes, don't you ever do that to me again. And I go, what? He says, don't you ever do that to me again. So what are you talking about? He says, you needed my help and you were afraid to ask me because I'm Rush Limbaugh. Don't you ever mm -hmm. do that to me again. Mm. And he told me this story. He says, when I went national, I knew I was going to be wealthy. I didn't realize how wealthy I was going to be. But I made a promise to God that when I became wealthy, I would do everything I could to take that wealth and use it to help other people. Oh, I love that. Love that. And he did. The, the amount he of did. humanitarian stuff that he did, that when people would rip on him because of a different opinion than them, were completely discounting the good that he did, which frankly, to me, if you can only critique somebody because you disagree with them, but you're not willing to look at who they are and what they're doing in the world. That mm -hmm. says more about you than them. Than them. He allowed us to use his Gulfstream jet when Jeffrey needed to go to Texas. Mm. He would send it up to Iowa where we were living at the time and take Val and Jeffrey down to Houston to MD Anderson. Awesome. He put money in Jeffrey's cancer bank account so that we would never have to worry about money. And it was a lot of money. And he told me, he says, if you need more, just ask. I have heard so many stories like that about Rush Limbaugh. And there's a lot of public donations you can go and see that he did where yeah. that donation wasn't even tracked. But there's mm -hmm. a lot of public things that if you just looked at what did Rush Limbaugh donate to, you would just be blown away. So there was one group that he did a lot of work with, and that was the Marine Corps Law Enforcement Foundation. And over the period of over 20 years, 
he gave $42 million to them. He also did the Cancer Lymphoma Foundation. He'd have his telethon and would raise money for that. Okay. And that was in the tens of millions of dollars. You know, the, the good Lord gives us that kind of wealth so that we can spread the wealth. All right. And not just money, not just airplanes, but also getting emails from him and his wife, Catherine, to Jeffrey, to me, you know, all these kinds of things supporting us going through this so great. terrible time period. But it wasn't just him. It was people in our congregation that were giving us credit cards to buy gas. We made 58 trips, 37 miles one way to the University of Iowa Cancer Center when Jeffrey was sick. And, and just people offering their right. help in many ways. All right. And it's funny too, because all the nurses, again, this is a college. So there's nurses no, going yeah. through college and all these kinds of different things. And the nurses that were there would say, where does he meet all these women? Because <laughs> he'd have all these girls that would come down and see him, you know, when uh -huh. he was getting his treatments and everything. And, and it's like, Jeffrey, where in the world did you meet all these girls? And it was just fun to sit there and watch all these young ladies oh. interact with him. And, and, uh, well, I want to, um, it was about yeah, Mark, you're just, you're such a font of wisdom. And, and I loved how we're talking about how people who probably didn't have a whole lot chose to give. Yeah. So, um, I sadly have to go because I've got my next thing, but you are so amazing, Mark. And thank you so much for being on. Oh, it actually just went live. So you are amazing. Mark, <laughs> and thank you for being on this episode of share your hotness. You're very welcome, Lita. Thank you for having me on and, uh, the book tanker pilot. You're amazing, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Lessons from the cockpit is the podcast. The book is called tanker pilot found on Amazon. Awesome. Thank you, Mark. See ya.